May only truth be spoken and only truth received. Amen. I want to begin tonight by saying something that might sound a bit jarring. We have a problem with sin. It's, fair, it's probably fair to assume that if a preacher sets out with that kind of an opening, he or she has something very particular in view, some issue, some problem, some deep moral failing that needs to be rectified, remedied, and stamped out. We have a problem with sin, I say, and you wonder what's been going on. People have a tendency to hear the word sin and to think in terms of particular acts, really self-indulgent and apparently really fun ones, too. In the early 1970s, the comedian Rolf Harris had a minor Canadian hit with his song, Vancouver Town, which included the following verse. I passed a church. I had to grin. The sign said, tired of sin? Come in. And written in lipstick loud and clear was, if not, call this number here. Well, Harris's lyrics actually offer both a demonstration of the problem we have with sin, as well as a rather helpful theological insight, though he probably had little sense that that's what he was doing when he wrote the song. The message scrawled in lipstick across the bottom of the church sign suggests that by calling that particular phone number, you could get yourself a bit of really appealing sin. As in, if you're not ready yet to act morally, religiously, and properly, come on down. Oh, you'll get around to repenting and getting your moral ducks in a row someday. But until you do, you might as well jot down this phone number while you get the picture. But it's the text on the church sign itself that actually takes us in the really interesting direction. Tired of sin, it asks. Pointing to a perspective that challenges the very assumption that informs the lipstick scrawl. Namely, that sin is somehow deliciously invigorating in its excess, self-indulgence, and libertine freedom. It's to be, in a sense, envied by those who've renounced it. That's the kind of perspective, actually, that's held by the elder brother in the parable of the prodigal son. He refuses to come into the party to celebrate the return of his younger brother. Instead, he sulks in the garden. And when his father comes out to him, he basically says, How dare you throw a party for him? who spent all of your money on prostitutes, and now you kill him, the fatted calf. How dare you do this? He's already had his great time. That, that's kind of the subtext. He's been having such a wonderful time sinning in the big city with the prostitutes, and now you're not going to make him pay for it? But, of course, we know the other side of the story, Right? The other side of the story is that the younger brother was broken 
in the city. Absolutely broken in his lostness, he was exhausted by sin, as good as dead, in fact. Now, consider the words from the prophet Isaiah as he gives voice to God's alternative. I am about to do a new thing, the Lord proclaims. Now it springs forth. Do you not perceive it? To a people who've neglected the very God who is the source of the only life that matters, something utterly new is being offered. Behold, I'm about to do a new thing. You have burdened me with your sins. You have wearied me with your iniquities. And yet still, says the Lord, I, I am he who blots out your transgressions for my own sake. I will not remember your sins. That which has exhausted this people, their sin, is to be blotted out and remembered no more. Just as the father in the parable of the prodigal can embrace his lost boy, Isaiah here is proclaiming that God will not hold the knowledge of the people's sin like some big club of moralism over their heads. God isn't interested in holding this people in some kind of an endless probation. I won't even remember it. You see, the problem we have with sin is that we so often fall into the trap of imagining it as the thing we'd rather be doing. You know, that's where the real fun is. That's where the lipstick scrawl is. But in fact, from a biblical perspective, sin isn't the thing that we'd rather be doing because it'd be so invigorating. It's the thing that distorts, exhausts us and keeps us from being the people we were created to be. For instance, when in his first letter to the Corinthians, Paul expresses a concern that some in the church community there are apparently visiting prostitutes, his isn't a moral issue, not at all. What he writes to them is, Do you not know that your bodies are members of Christ? Should I therefore take the members of Christ and make them members of a prostitute? Never. Do you not know that whoever is united to a prostitute becomes one body with her? His concern isn't moralism. It's not prudishness. It's not saying that's, that's, that's bad to go see those women. His concern is about the distortion of the self, presumably including the self of those women who live by prostitution. Which is why when those men in the gospel story dig through the roof of that house in Capernaum in order to get their paralyzed friend into the presence of Jesus, the first thing he does is to offer the man forgiveness. Son, he says, your sins are forgiven. You have to wonder what would have happened next if the scribes hadn't got all up in arms about you know, what they think is Jesus' enormous presumption of offering forgiveness. It's blasphemy, they say. Who can forgive sins but God alone? 
You see, we might assume that the thing that this poor guy, this poor paralyzed man most needed was to have his paralysis healed. But to Jesus, the more important move, the first move he makes, was to proclaim God's new thing. The blotting out of the man's transgression and the deep forgetting of his sins. All that was distorting and exhausting and drawing the life from him, it's forgotten. All that was keeping him from being what he was created to be, all that has emptied and exhausted his soul, is no longer even in the divine memory banks. But you heard the story and what came next. After the scribes challenged the very fact that Jesus is speaking words of forgiveness, he says, So that you may know that the Son of Man has authority on earth to forgive sins, I say to you, and looking at the man, he says, Take up your mat, stand up, go to your home. And the man stood up and immediately took the mat and went out before all of them. So they were all amazed and they glorified God saying, We have never seen anything like this before. No kidding. And yet as much as it would have been wondrous to watch that man take up his mat and go dancing out the door, and much as it must have been a wonder for that man to feel his legs again, in Mark's view... The deeper miracle is in Jesus' gift of forgiveness to the guy. And to be really clear, there's not even a hint of a suggestion that the man's paralysis was some sort of punishment or consequence of his sin. It's simply that in Jesus' view, the thing that would make him most whole was forgiveness. There's a question in our baptismal liturgy that asks the candidate, will you persevere in resisting evil? And whenever you fall into sin, repent and return to the Lord. Did you catch the wording? Not if you fall into sin, but whenever you fall into sin. Well, that represents a pretty realistic view of how life in this world of ours goes in which moving yet again into postures sure to exhaust and limit us will happen? The answer to that question is, I will, with God's help, which is equally realistic, for it acknowledges that to be what we've been created to be can only happen through the gracious help of the one who is yet again and always about to do a new thing, God's new thing in us again. Starting this week on Ash Wednesday, we will be in the season of Lent. It's the season in the church year in which we're invited to place a particular focus on these kinds of matters, matters of who we are and how we need to be unsettled and relocated with God's help. It's framed as a time to intentionally enter a symbolic wilderness or desert terrain and to do a bit of work on ourselves. There's a little brochure available at the back of the church, and it's on our website. 
gives a bit of guidance as to how you might engage this season, which I'd really encourage you to do. And in in particular, I'd commend to you a daily Lenten discipline of some kind, something that day by day can remind you to pay attention to your hurts and your needs and, yes, your sin. And that might involve changing your daily practice by choosing to give something up for Lent, candy or caffeine, maybe Facebook, television, going to the mall. In a consumer society, the possibilities are endless. could also involve taking something on, daily reading, a new practice of prayer, some sort of simple service to others. Again, there are any number of things you might choose to do. But do try to choose something that will mark the 40 days of Lent as a different time. And on Good Friday, as the season draws toward its close and we tell the hardest story of the church year, maybe ask yourself what sort of problem you have with sin. You might be surprised by what you've learned and by the real promise, the deep promise, the transformative promise held out to us in God's new thing, always and ever offered. Amen.